we have uh, gathered together for a phase of our worship, which is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was instituted by the Lord first for the purpose of commemorating what he instituted, of course, in remembrance of him. And that's why he said, do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is really the church coming together in joint participation in Christ. It is something that needs to be celebrated joyfully with great thinking, of course, during the celebration. As well as we know, when we take off the bread, the bread no doubt represents the body of Christ as given on our behalf, but it also tells us, it's a way of saying, we belong to the church of Christ. The cup, sharing in the cup, means that we are sharing in the blessings of the death of Christ on the cross, including forgiveness of our sins, eternal life that is made possible through Jesus Christ. However, this is a very uh, serious occasion so that when we celebrate, we have to be uh, very careful of our, the condition of our soul. This is why we have this uh, warning given to us. Say, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you are fallen asleep. That is to say, those who in Corinth came in and took this lightly, some of them went home died, and some went home sick. Therefore, it is a very solemn occasion, and therefore you must ponder, you must shake your soul as you partake of this celebration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this privilege that your son had afforded us to celebrate in remembrance of him. We do recognize that the mind cannot uh, focus on him apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we request that the Holy Spirit would enable us to focus as we celebrate what he has instituted for us. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. 
in the night, just before our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread. After offering thanks, he said, eat, this represents my body. Again, Father, we are thankful. As we continue to celebrate the cup, we pray also that the Holy Spirit will continue to cause us to focus on your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the same fashion, our Lord took the cup after offering thanks and says, drink from it, all of you.
In the first half, before we went on a break, we reviewed uh, the message of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27 through 31, which we said it is, Be aware of the specific spiritual assignments God made to individuals in the church. But your focus in your spiritual life should not be on the gifts associated with them. Instead, you should be focused on living out the spiritual life. So we said there are four propositions that are necessary to expound the message. The first one is that spiritual assignments are made to uh, different uh, individuals in the church of Christ that you are a member. The second is that spiritual assignments are ranked according to their importance to the church of Christ. The third, that God maintains diversity in spiritual assignments in the church. And so, no assignment should be undervalued. Based on that, we looked at this, uh, the seven rhetorical questions that the apostle presented in verses 29 and uh, 30 that had to do with being an apostle, a prophet, a teacher, and so on. We also made the point that the list that he gave in verse, uh, verses 29 and 30, he did not mention uh, the gift of, he didn't mention anything about health or administration. And so we wonder why, and before the break I began to explain that it is because if he had done that, it would seem like the idea of help would be limited to people with a special assignment. But as it stands, every believer is expected to be able to help. Now, granting there are those with special assignment, and as I said in, before break, they are the ones that they will go out all the way to help. No matter what it is, they will go out all the way to help. In the same way that the idea of administration was not mentioned because, as we say, the Greek word is the Greek word used is understood to mean more like giving guidance, then that's the reason it wasn't mentioned. Because all believers are expected to provide guidance to one another. And that is where we stopped when I quoted Colossians 3 verse 16. And that's what we pick up the second half. Colossians 3 verse 16. It reads, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another, with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with gratitude in your hearts to God. Now the word admonish is translated from a Greek word that means to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. Hence it means to warn or to instruct. Not in a formal setting. For example, the word is used to indicate that believers should be able to instruct each other or to advise each other on spiritual matters, as we read in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Romans 15, verse 14. 
Romans chapter 15 verse 14. It is, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourself are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. That's not a pastor teaching. It's every believer being able to instruct. See, the word instruct here is not to be understood then as a formal instruction, since not every believer has a gift of teaching. Instead, it is the, that of offering advice to each other based on what one has been taught from the scripture. Now, it is because the sense of uh, instructs here has, uh, is that of advice that the New English Bible, instead of the verbal phrase, competent to instruct one another, of the NIV translated the Greek this way. Well able, well able to give advice to one another. That's where they translated it to show that what is involved is we are supposed to. Now, yeah, it's because it's, we've studied the doctrine of advice in our study of Exodus. But here is the danger is. If you don't know enough of the scripture, you may offer advice to people that are not sound with the scripture. But if you know the scripture, which is what is expected of us, to be well versed in the scripture so we can advise our fellow believers in certain things when we see certain things going wrong in their way or their life. Anyway, as we have stated, another meaning of the Greek word, uh, to one is part of guidance that believers are expected then to carry out to one another, as we read, for example, in First Thessalonians chapter five, verse fourteen. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse fourteen. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. It is, And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So, the word brothers here indicate that the apostle addressed all believers in the local church in Thessalonica, since they are the ones the apostle addressed in the same first Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, look at verse 12. Verse 12 of it says, Now we ask you, brothers, so he's talking about brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and to admonish you. Therefore then, the warning of others regarding idleness, it's not an instruction given to the spiritual, uh, the leaders of the congregation, but to each other believer. So we have that responsibility. Every believer has that responsibility. Now, since warning uh, someone is part of guidance, then we contain that all believers are expected to be involved in guidance of one another. And the point is that 
Believers then are expected though, to advise or uh, provide guidance to each other based on what each has learned from the Bible. Now this being the case, we can understand the reason then, the assignment of guidance or administration in the word in the NIV used in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, is not used in verses 29 and 30. And in that is that every believer is expected to perform the assignment of advising and guidance and warning. Although there are those who are specially gifted to do that. There are those who are specially gifted to do that. In any case, the third proposition that we have considered then is that God maintains diversity in spiritual assignments in the church and so no spiritual assignment should be undervalued. And so that brings us to the last proposition derived from the section of 1 Corinthians 12 verses 27 through 31. The fourth and final proposition of this section that we're considering is this. The believer's focus should not be on gifts associated with the spiritual assignments, but on, this, on their spiritual life. That is the message, if you remember that's the full message, part of it contains this uh, proposition. That is, you are not to focus on spiritual gifts, whatever they happen to be. You don't need to focus on them. You recognize them, but your focus should be, how is that impacting me spiritually? How am I growing? Now, this is one of those things that I think uh, some of us may or may not get. And that is this. Anytime you hear the teaching of the Word of God, you must ask the question, how is that affecting me? Don't, don't worry about the other person. Don't worry about him or her. Think about yourself. How is that impacting me? Is that helping me? How is that challenging me? Not the other person. And if you do that, then you are helping your own spiritual life. Because as it is, like I said, I mean, I make no boast about it. Uh, some of the reason uh, some of all uh, believers today don't want to go to some Bible teaching churches because they don't want to be taught. They, want, they don't want somebody to tell them the truth. They want you to stroke them and give them all these false hopes and false things that they think they are fantastic believers. Because they are not, uh, you know, getting drunk or chasing somebody's wife or all that, or husband. And they think they are wonderful Christians. When in reality, they are far from that. So they don't want to go where you can tell them the truth. That hurts. Now the truth that helps us must hurt us. Why? Because we are sinful human beings. We don't like truth. Now forget people say, yeah, I love the truth. Yeah, really. We don't love it. But we are asked to love it. Because that's what helps us. So when you hear truth, you ask yourself, how is that helping me advance my spiritual life? So this proposition then is derived from what the apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 31 where we're studying. Look at what it says. But eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I will show you 
the most excellent way. Now, before we examine this passage, you should be aware that there are those who think that verse 31 should, be, should not be a part of chapter 12. They should belong to chapter 13 since what is given in verse 31 better fits what the apostle gave in the 13th chapter. Now this may well be uh, the case since the divisions of chapters and verses are not part of the inspiration of scripture but work of scholars. In other words, the Bible, if you see the Greek text, it just reads, almost runs together. There's no break where you have chapter 12, chapter 1, verse 1. No, it doesn't, it doesn't exist that way. These were things that scholars went in and put in to help us so that when I can now say uh, chapter this, verse this, we all go to the same place. Instead of if I quote it, just a passage, it would take a whole day to even find it, if you can even find it. So this is the way, so the scholars who've done this, they've done a great job. But sometimes they break things up in the, in the middle. And sometimes uh, we have to remember that they weren't inspired to do that. There was not any inspiration in that. It's just that God, in his grace, guided them and they did their best. So this may well be the case that we have here. Thus it is possible then that verse 31 could be considered part of the 13th chapter. Nonetheless, whether we take verse 31 of the 12th chapter or as a part of 12th chapter or the 13th chapter does not make much of a difference in its analysis since it is indeed a transitional verse that ends the 12th chapter and introduces the 13th chapter. In other words, next week, it will now bring us, carry us into chapter 13, where we start dealing with the issue of love. Next week. But, the that as it may, as we have stated, the fourth proposition is based on what, uh, on the, uh, what the apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. But, eagerly desire the gifts the greater gifts. And now, I will show you the most excellent way. Now there is a question of how to relate though, the, this verse to what preceded. There are two general ways of viewing the verse. Either that verse 31 is somehow related to the preceding section or that it is not part of it. It's not related. Those are two options. Now this second in, uh, interpretation may result in not beginning uh, the verse with any connectives since uh, the implication of the second interpretation is that the apostle is transitioning to something new. Whereas the first interpretation is subject to more uh, interpretations of whether the verse is that of a result of something, of what has happened, or that it states something that is contrasting of what preceded. Now this is because the 
word birth, look at it, it says birth, eagerly desire. That word birth is translated from a Greek particle that may be used to connect one clause to another. Either to express a contrast or simple continuation, but in certain circumstances or occurrences, the marker may be left untranslated. Now, although it is often translated but in the English, when there is a perceived contrast between two clauses, it has the meaning of now, then, so and so on, when it is used to link uh, uh, segments of narratives. So, when it is used to link then segments of narrative, it could be used to insert an explanation, in which case it may be translated, that is, that is. So it could also be used to resume a discourse that has been interrupted so that it may be translated now or even so then. In our passage of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 31, it seems that the apostle used it to state a result of the point he made in verses 29 and 30. And that point which is that God maintains diversity in spiritual assignment in the church and so no spiritual assignment should be undervalued. Therefore, having made that point, based on this fact, the believers in Corinthian and so all believers should be more concerned with something other than the spiritual assignment that God gave, uh, has given to the church. So this interpretation implies then that verse 31 should begin with the word so. Instead of but. It should begin with the word so. Now this is probably the interpretation favored by the, uh, by the translators of the New Living Translation. Since they began verse 31 with the word so. It's also possible that a, that is the interpretation that is followed by the translators of the 2011 edition of the NIV since they began verse 31 with the conjunction now. Now. Which may here has the meaning something, something like this. Uh, as a consequence of the fact that there is diversity in the spiritual assignment God gives believers. Uh, now, believers then should be more concerned with advancing spiritually. So, that's why you get that part of the main message. That you should not be more concerned about the assignment, but about your own spiritual advancement. Anyway, or really though, uh, the use of the word now, in the 2011 of NIV, may signal transition to something new. Of course, it is uh, possible that the apostle may be contrasting the view of the Corinthians regarding spiritual assignments to what they should be focusing. It's possible. Now, be that all in name, the apostle's concern is given in the instruction of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, that we're studying, say, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Eagerly. See, there is something about having this excitement about things. I tell you what this truth, though. If you're a person that's never excited about anything, I don't know the kind of life you have, really. 
You're never excited about anything. Got to have some excitement in your life. About something that is truthful. I'm not talking about, you know, excited that you got a new car. I'm not talking about that. Or you got a new whatever it is. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about excitement that has to do with truth. That's what I'm, I'm concerned with. Anyway, so the Greek word translated eagerly desire is subject to two interpretations. It could be viewed as a statement of the apostle to the Corinthians, or it could be viewed as a command to them. Now, those who take the position that the apostle is merely making a statement generally do, uh, do so because they think that it is unnatural for the apostle to be commanding the Corinthians to desire what he has been criticizing about their obsession with some spiritual gifts. They consider the greater uh, spiritual gifts such as tongues. So that's why some of them say, well, you know, he's been criticizing them about that. So he cannot be telling them to go ahead and be desiring it. Anyway, this notwithstanding though, it is more likely that the apostle issued a command to the Corinthians to desire spiritual gifts that are more beneficial to the church. You see, the apostle used the plural form of the Greek verb so that he was not saying uh, for the Corinthians individually to desire spiritual gifts as if a person could seek uh, this spiritual gift as opposed to God graciously giving them. This, the apostle's point is that the church as a whole, the church as a whole, should be more desirous of what is described as greater gifts. That's the church as a group. They want to have in them, among them, those with that, those greater gifts, whatever they, that we're going to see what they are. That will serve the church then and not an individual per se. Hence, we join uh, those who take the Greek as a command issued to the Corinthians to be what the apostle intended instead of a statement. So anyway, the expression eagerly desire them is translated from a Greek word that is used both negatively and positively. A Greek word, zeleio o. Negatively, it may mean to have intense negative feeling over another's achievement or success. That is then, whether that means to be filled with jealousy or envy. Now, a whole lot of people get into that. Intensely too. Now, that is the way it is used. To describe a feeling or attitude that is incompatible with love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4. We're good to get uh, by the grace of God. We'll get to that uh, uh, in the next coming weeks. But so then at that point I will say, you know, just to say, ah, you know, some will say, I love him so much. If I couldn't have him, no one will have him. Or ha, whatever. <laughs> That's not love. You're talking about something else. It's not love. Anyway, so here it says, love is patient. Love is kind. 
He does not envy. That word envy comes more from a Greek word. He does not boast. He is not proud. Now positively, the word may mean to be positively and intensely interested in something. And so means to strive, to be dedicated, to excite oneself, to desire intensely. Now the positive sense of the word deals with what is desirable, so that the apostle uses the word positively three times, including our passage of 1 Corinthians 12, 31. In, in his epistle to the Corinthians, to instruct them regarding spiritual gifts. So, he used it uh, for desire for spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. First Corinthians. Hold on to that. First Corinthians chapter fourteen verse one reads, "Follow the way of love, and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy." Now he uses it for desire for exercising the gift of prophecy. Look at verse thirty-nine of the same uh, chapter fourteen. Look at verse thirty-nine. It is, therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So interesting, in these two passages, the apostle used a present tense in issuing the commands. Now the fact that these two uh, usages involve a command argues then that a third uh, usage, which is really the first one, also in the present tense, in our passage of uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, should also be seen as a command and not a statement. And hence, the position we take. Anyway, the apostles' usage of the present tense in issuing the command in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, implies that the command he issued it should be repeatedly obeyed. Whatever it is that he issued is here, something you have to do repeatedly. There are many things in this life that uh, help us form, we can do them repeatedly, depending on what it is. We form habits. The way we form habits is by doing something repeatedly. Now, some are good and some are bad. But we do form habits that way. So, when you begin to form the habit, of, of doing what the Bible says, that's when you begin to grow spiritually. See, you, the first habit you form is what you're doing now, sit down and listen. But the second one is to form the habit of not transferring what you have to an action. And once you form that habit, that's when you cannot see the spiritual growth taking place. If you stop with what the first one, no spiritual growth. You just have a head full of knowledge, as they say, and that's it. But you must combine it with the action. Anyway, so that aside, it is a positive sense then that our Greek word is used in our passage so that it may mean something like to be zealous, to be zealous. 
That is to be or become uh, marked by active interest, passion, and enthusiasm for something. Often a cause of faith. You have to be passionate. Now have the, you know, this, you, if you don't have the passion, this is what you know, some of us pastors, that's where, where our problem comes from, what we don't study. It takes you to be excited. You wake up every day excited about studying the world next day. And so on and so forth. You, you as a believer, you have to have the same thing. You must have that passion that every day you want to go back to the Bible. You want to learn something taught. If, like I say, I mean, I, I keep saying and some of you will eventually, well, maybe a few people will get it. I, I know some of you already got it. But maybe a few more will get it. I keep saying this. If all you do is to come here, sit for an hour on Wednesday or two hours on Sunday, and never go home and go over your notes or listen to the lesson, you haven't started. You're not serious yet. Now, you can ignore me or, you know, you blow me off. That's fine. But you're blowing off your spiritual life. You have to obey that instruction. If you're going to progress spiritually, if you don't obey it, you're not going to grow. I can assure you that, that no human being is that smart to sit down here in two hours and get what it takes me 36 hours to study. You're not going to get it. It's just not going to happen. So you need to go back home and go back and re-listen. Let the Holy Spirit do the teaching. Because I've shown you that the Bible tells us you don't need a teacher let the Holy Spirit teach you. And I explain what that means. It doesn't mean you don't need somebody to give you the first cut. What I do is to give you the first cut. Now you go home. Turn it back. In your own time. Because now I'm talking fast. I'm going through a lot. At that time, you know, thank God today we have all these gadgets. You can slow it down. You can pause it. You can listen. And so you grasp what we're studying. They become a part of you, but you have to have the enthusiasm. It's not as well, well, let's just go. As many people do, I mean, to various churches, they just go, let's just go to church. There is a thing to do on Sunday. Now I'm saying, no, you must have this enthusiasm. It must be something that you're enthusiastic about, that you want to know about what God says in His Word. Anyway, the thing though, the apostle instructs is that they have to be passionate about more or less. It's given here, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, the West Tony, it says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. See, be excited. That's what he's saying. Be excited. Be compact. You know, go on with this kind of enthusiasm that you want to know about these greater gifts. You want it. Now, the thing that the apostle instructs is given then, in the uh, passage we are studying, First Corinthians 12, 31, it says, Eagerly desire the greater gifts. The greater gifts. The word greater is translated from the Greek word uh, megas. That has the basic meaning of great. But with different nuances. That's, so the word may mean great in the sense pertaining to Exceeding a standard involving related objects, 
And so may mean something like large, large, it's some Greek word. As Apostle Paul used it to describe a house, as he makes the point that some individuals serve good purposes, while others do not. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. Second Timothy chapter two verse twenty. Second Timothy chapter two verse twenty reads In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. So what it is, is, yeah. Again, it goes back to some are here for a good purpose and some are not. Now, the word may mean great in the sense of pertaining to being above standard in intensity, so that when used with something like sound or one's voice, the word then means loud, loud. As when the Lord Jesus uttered the words by which he raised Lazarus from the dead. In, as recorded in John chapter 11 verse uh, 43. John 11 verse 43. John chapter 11 verse 43. It reads... When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice. That, is, that phrase, loud voice, if we translate literally, the Greek says, in a great voice. But that's not really a way to communicate. Great voice doesn't mean anything. It's a loud voice. A loud voice says, Lazarus, come out. Now the word may mean great in the sense of pertaining to being relatively superior in importance. Hence, it may mean something like more prominent or outstanding because of certain advantages. So it is in this sense that the word is used by the Samaritan woman to compare the Lord Jesus Christ to Jacob as we read in John chapter 4 verse 12. John chapter 4 verse 12. John chapter 4 verse 12 says, Are you greater? Didn't, she didn't know who she was talking to. She said, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds. Now it is true that the Greek word is translated greater here by most of our English versions. But it has a sense of importance. Importance. Now, that was the uh, God's Word translation. Translated the question of the NIV. The NIV says, are you greater than our father Jacob? This is the way they translated it. You are not more important than our ancestor Jacob, are you? That's the way they translated it. To capture the word great there means important. Now the word may mean 
surprising as Apostle Paul used it to describe satanic agents in Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 15. Second Corinthians Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 15 It is It is not surprising Then If his servants Masquerade as Servants of righteousness Their end will be what their answers Actions deserve. So here, the same Greek word as translate great is translated surprising. In our passage of 1 Corinthians 12, 31, the Greek word is used in the sense of more important. More important. So this means that the thing the apostles said, the Corinthians, and so all believers should be passionate about or zealous about, in the NIV, when they say greater gifts should really be read as more important gifts. Not greater gifts, more important gifts. Now the word gifts, of course, is translated from a Greek word charisma. Charisma. That may mean favor bestowed or gift, as it is used for the gracious gift of eternal life in Romans chapter 6 verse 23. Romans Romans chapter 6 verse 23 It is for the wages of sin is death but the gift, that word gift, yes our word of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now our Greek word may be used for a special gift, um, as it is used for the gift bestowed upon Timothy. I'm not going to read it, but you can jot it down in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Now, it is used to describe special gifting bestowed on believers that enable them to serve in the church, as the Apostle Peter states in 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 10. First Peter chapter 4 verse 10. It is, each one should use whatever gift, that's charisma, he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12 uh, verse 31, it is really used in the sense of uh, special gift of a non-material sort bestowed through God's generosity on individual Christians. Hence, it means something like a spiritual gift that God graciously bestows upon the believer. Now, in any case, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle indicates that the Corinthians and so all believers should be passionate or desirous of more important spiritual gifts. However, the apostle did not immediately tell us what the more important gifts are. But from 
the 14th chapter of this epistle, we know that one of the more important spiritual gifts for the church of Christ is the gift of prophecy. That's one of the more important gifts. Now, this important gift would certainly include the gift of teaching, as that is quite beneficial to any local church. Nonetheless, the apostle turned his attention then to what we should, uh, to what should be more important in the spiritual life of the believer. Now we said that the apostle turned his attention to more important facts in the spiritual life because of the last clause of First Corinthians 12 verse 31. That last, look at the last clause of First Corinthians uh, verse 21. It actually, uh, verse 31. It begins in the Greek with a Greek particle that's definitely translated and in uh, many times in our English versions. However, the word has other uh, meanings. So the, it can mean something like um, nevertheless or in spite of that. But it also can mean and so. So it has several meanings, but uh, the issue is in our passage, though, of First Corinthians 12, 31, how is it used? It is used to, uh, probably to indicate additional information that results from what preceded. Thus, it could be then translated and or simply so, as in the contemporary English version, that's the way they translated So the declaration, though, of the apostle in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, and now I will show you the most excellent way, indicates that he was about to state that which is of greater degree of importance to what he stated previously. Now we say this because the word now, in the 1984 edition of the NIV, or yet, in the 20, uh, 2011 edition of the NIV. So that word leads us to make that kind of comment. Now see the word now is translated from a Greek adverb that uh, may mean still, yet, that may imply time or degree of something. It may also mean in addition, or it can also mean simply also or more. In, uh, in the sense of that which is added to what is already at hand. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 31, it is used in the sense of to a greater degree or even more. To a greater degree or even more. So then, that being the case, it may be translated still or even. Hence, the apostle, in a sense, indicates that he was about to deal with something of great importance, although some take the view that the adverb here is concerned with time, so they translate the word they think now means has to do with time. Now the thing that is of great importance, the apostle is concerned, is conveyed in the sentence, I will show you the most excellent way. I will show you the most excellent way. Now that expression, most excellent, is translated from a Greek word that may mean a degree which exceeds extraordinarily a point on 
uh, an implied or overt scale of extent. And so it simply means something like extraordinary quality or character. Or it can mean to a far greater degree. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 31, it is used in the sense of extraordinary overabundance. Extraordinary overabundance. That is then the state of having extremely, even superlatively, more than is necessary. The word in the Greek is used to qualify what it is that you have to have in this uh, extraordinary overabundance. And it, it qualifies the word way. Say the most excellent way. Now that word way really is translated from a Greek word that may mean way or highway because the Greek word hudos. It's a way uh, that refers to a highway as a way from, for traveling or moving from one location to another as that is the way it is used in the traveling together of Philip the Evangelist and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 verse 36. Acts And hold on to Acts. Acts chapter 8 verse 36. It is, as a traveler along the road, they came to some water and the union said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? See, that word road is the same Greek word translated way in our passage. Now the word may mean journey or trip in the sense of the action of traveling as the word is used to describe the action of traveling of Paul to Damascus before his conversion when uh, following it of course Barnabas introduced him to the apostles as we read in Acts chapter 9 verse 27. Acts chapter 9 verse 27 reads, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul in his, on his journey, that's the same word translated way, here it's translated journey, on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Now the word may mean though, the uh, Christian way of life. The Christian way of life. As it is used to describe the whole way of life from a moral and spiritual viewpoint in the most comprehensive way or sense and specifically of the teaching and manner of life relating to Jesus Christ. Now this is the sense in which the word is used by the Apostle Paul in his defense before Governor Felix in Acts chapter 24 verse 14. Acts 24 
verse 14. Acts chapter 24, verse 14. It is, however, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law, and that is written in that is written in the prophets. You see, the way, that, of course, the way, that is a way to describe the Christian faith and everything surrounding to it. And of course, they call it a sect. Just as, you know, today, um, like I say, you all hear that, you're a cult, right? <laughs> yeah. If you, if you out of the ordinary, where the word is told to you, and you don't follow whatever is normal that people follow, not necessarily because it's right, because everyone is copying each other, then you are called a sect. But truly, today, uh, a cult is any group that calls themselves Christians, but do not have a solid view of the scripture. Now, no matter they have a slight view of Jesus Christ, or a slight view of this or that. That's what really a cult is. But we'll just throw it about they don't know what they're talking about. So here, before that, they just call the Christian way sect. Well, almost like, you know, this weird people talking about this dead man that rose from, they say or claim that he rose from the dead. And that's how they were perceived. It hasn't changed, though. So if you stand by the way, the Christian way of life, according to truth, you be labeled something else. So that's what we have here. But the, the apostle uh, talked about it as something that he himself thought was wrong anyway. And that's why he persisted Christians. Anyway, the Greek word may simply may mean way of life, that is then the cause of behavior as it is used to describe the danger of living a life of righteousness in, in Christ as a Christian and then to walk away from it. See what I'm saying? It is, that's, some of the things that some of us don't really realize, it is more detrimental to you to first say, okay, I'm a Christian, I follow this and follow that, and then back away from it. Now some people say, I quit being a Christian. Hmm. My thing is, were you, the, were you ever a Christian? If you were a Christian, you can never quit being a Christian. You understand that? If you are actually saved, you can, there's nothing you can do about it. You will not have life. You've been given eternal life. You can't remove that. We you think we can't commit what I call spiritual suicide in that in a, in a space. We can't. Because once God gives you that eternal life, you have believed in Christ, then you decide, well, I don't want to live as a Christian. I'm tired, whatever your reason is. I'm tired of following the Bible. I'm tired of this. Let me just live up, whatever it is. My friend, that is a very dangerous thing to think about. Why do I say that? 
I didn't make it that up though. You know that, right? Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 21. Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 21. This is something that everyone here that claims to be a believer must pay attention to. I don't care what, you know, wherever you are on your, on, on your journey on this planet, you must pay attention to this passage. Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 21, reads this way. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred commands that was passed on to them. And we've gone home with the rest of it and see how awful it's described. In other words, is, in a person is an unbeliever, it's, you know, in a sense, it's better for the moment. It's not for him, it's just for that moment. Than for you, who have come to believe in Christ, you have learned some truth, and then walk away from it. And that is just, you just don't know what a person has put himself or herself under. Now you, I mean, I, because I deal with all kinds of things, read all kinds of things, there have been, I mean, some believers who have had some horrible lives on this planet. And some of them, the Lord put them through all kinds of horrible things, and they checked out. I mean, he took them out. Now, I've known some believers, and one case still rings in my mind, one of the most horrible deaths I have ever observed was a person who did what we're doing here. She decided for whatever justification she gave, she wasn't going to follow that. And she had a horrible way of death. I mean, she died, as far as I know, I'm here to see a believer that went through that kind of horrible death. It's awful. So what I'm saying to you is, don't ever even think about that. Don't even, I mean, don't, it shouldn't ever come to your thinking to ever live what you have now learned, what you have heard, and begin to go the other way. Don't ever think about it. Unless you want to have a life of misery on the planet, and then have it your way. Otherwise, no believer should ever go there. Anyway, in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, the Greek word has a sense of conduct. That is a cause of conduct. Hence, the apostle conveyed to the Corinthians and so to us all that he was about to state what is more important in the spiritual life. It is his way of conduct, both in exercise of spiritual gifts and functioning as a Christian that is more beneficial in the spiritual life that the apostle then introduced in the next chapter, which is, of course, love. He didn't put that in the next chapter. Now this is probably the reason then some commentators believe that uh, at least the second clause of verse 31 should belong to the 13th chapter and not in the 12th chapter. Anyway, we end our consideration of this 12th chapter by reminding you of the fourth proposition, which is that believers 
the believer's focus should not be on gifts associated with the spiritual assignments but on their spiritual life. Of course, the overall message of 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 31 that we have considered is be aware of the specific spiritual assignments God made uh, to individuals in the church, but your focus in your spiritual life should not be on the gifts associated with them. Instead, be focused on living out the spiritual life. So, that's the challenge. Are you going to focus on living out your spiritual life? Don't be carried away. They will talk about this gift, this gift. Don't get carried away. Let them talk about what they want to. Be focused. How am I living the life of a Christian? How is my life reflecting Christ? That should be your focus. Because when you do, I guarantee you, and I mean this when I say that, you should be floating in the air. And I mean it. I've said it many times. And some of you may have caught me. And my thing is, if you start living as a Christian, you should be floating. And that's, you're not walking, you're floating. Because the kind of joy and peace that you experience is beyond any description. No human being can duplicate it. No money, nothing can bring that to you. You may have the, you know, be as poor as a, what is a church right or whatever. And yet, you have this inner peace. You have this inner joy. This inner contentment. In that way, you walk around in fullness of life. Because you're not worried about things people are worried about. You're not afraid of what they're afraid of. You're living your spiritual life in a way that's honoring to the Lord. And that, my friend, is a challenge for all of us. Let's pray. As we close our study this morning, there may be someone here or someone listening over the internet that if you die now, you go straight to hell. Why? Because you don't have life yet. Now you say, how do I get life? Well, that's a good thing. Question to ask. Here's the way it begins. You have to go back. To recognize the love of God for you. He loves you so much. That. He sent his son. The second member. Of the Godhead. To leave heaven. To come to be born. Through a virgin woman. And he lived. On this planet. Did miracles. Taught. Proved that he is the son of God. That he is God. After all that, he came for a purpose to pay for your sins and my sins. That's why he's called the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So he came, and after he finished his work, he has to pay for our sins. That's why they came and arrested him. On the way when they were coming to arrest him, he asked him, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. He spoke. And all of them fell to the ground. Because God spoke. He identified himself. I am. But then he gave them permission. And they arrested him. They took him. Made a mockery trial. Condemned him to death. And gave him. After all those beating him. Because we are told. That the way they might handle him in that praetorium. He was so disfigured. That if you knew him. When he came out you would recognize him. 
That's of course according to the prophecy being fulfilled in Isaiah. So when he did that, he didn't cry. He didn't complain. The pain on him was unbearable. Yet he didn't cry. He didn't complain. They took him, nailed him down on that cross, lifted that up. When they were nailing him down, that was a lot of pain. Physical pain. But the son of God didn't say what? Because the last six, three hours on that cross, when my sins, your sins, were being poured on the Son of God, that was so unbearable that he let out that cry, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you may be brought in. He was forsaken that you may have life. How? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. What are you going to believe again? The Bible says, this are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in Him, you have life through His name. If you believe that He died, was buried, rose again the third day, you will receive eternal life. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will challenge us to be those who are more focused on our spiritual lives than be so concerned about the special assignments that you've given to various individuals in the church. This is our request in Christ's name.